Welcome to the Shades of Hope podcast. This is a frank conversation between two friends who care deeply about the case for racial justice as it's presented in the gospel. In this podcast, we'll cover where racial justice shows up in the Bible, why it's important for pastors to be in conversation, God's urgency for this work, and how the church can start conversations for the work of racial justice. Welcome, Pastor Jeff. We are so excited to have this privilege to talk with you again. The last time we were together, we dealt with the question of why uh, you and I feel this conversation is very relevant, pertinent, and expedient for the church today. And so I thought today we would maybe give our listeners a little glimpse of how you and I kind of formed our relationship and friendship, and now our churches are doing some things together. And so I have a question for you as we begin this segment, is what made you as a white evangelical pastor take this risk to get involved in not only the conversations that you and I have been having, but also engaging your congregation at a level as it relates to social justice? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say that some people have light bulb moments where you were in the darkness and then all of a sudden something switched and it just illuminated everything. And I would say that has not been my experience, that this has kind of been a slow sunrise (laughs) that has over time illuminated the darkness of my I would just say homogeneous upbringing. I grew up in white contexts, very, very, very white framework for understanding the gospel, went off to a white Bible college, predominantly white Bible college, and was just never really exposed to diversity of any kind. Wow. And I will say that it wasn't just that I wasn't exposed to it. It was that I was taught to avoid it, that there are certain parts of our city that we don't go to. There are certain parts of, you know, they're they're just certain conversations we don't have. And so I was raised in a space that was all white. But then I think in addition to that, I was trained to not venture outside of that whiteness. And it wasn't until probably very early on in my ministry probably in the early 90s, where I started having relationships with people through books that started to stir diversity in the way that I thought theologically, culturally, and even ecclesiologically. And so over time, and then with relationships with other people, I realized that I lived in a very sheltered world and that that wasn't good for me. Mm. And I, I don't know if there was a moment where somebody said, hey, it's not good for you to be in these predominantly white spaces and not try to find other viewpoints. And I would even say theological homogeneity, too. I grew up in a very narrow theological tradition and was told that exploring anything outside of that tradition was dangerous. 
And so as I started opening up my mind theologically, then I began to start opening my mind culturally. And what I realized is that I have been missing out on a you know, Paul says in Ephesians, the multifaceted wisdom of God, that I had a facet of the wisdom of God, but it was not multifaceted. Uh, so you became uncomfortable in a comfortable yes. situation. Yes. Wow. I started taking the words of Jesus seriously. He meant what he said. Yeah. And when I started to take the words of Jesus seriously, I realized that, I, I mean, you just look at the disciples, you know, when he put a group of people together, he didn't put a homogeneous group together. He put the most diverse group of people he could find together, people who hated each other, the zealot and the tax collector in the same 12. I can't imagine dinner conversations were just always nice and pleasant and comfortable <laughs> and easy. I mean, I think there was a lot of trying to figure out how to navigate life with people who have very different backgrounds than yourself. And so, yes, I had grown up in a very comfortable, safe and protected, I would even say intentionally protected environment that I realized that when I said yes to Jesus, I was saying yes to a whole new way of thinking about the world. Wow. Now, if I remember one of our conversations, mm -hmm. be very transparent here. You've got some black blood in your veins. <laughs> yes, I do. I, and I want to say to our listeners, he, he doesn't look at all. I don't see any melanin in his skin. But I, I, talk to me about that and how this conversation you just had with us was so white. But yet, did they hide your black grandfather from you? Yeah. So when I was right around 20, my mom sat me down and told us that our great grandfather was a black man. Wow. I knew my great grandmother had spent lots of time at her house mm -hmm. and there was never any pictures up that, you know, of the family. And as a young child, I didn't think too much of it. She never remarried, but there was none of the children, her children, my mother then, and then us had any characteristics that would have immediately signaled that there was a mixed marriage, but we didn't talk about it. And, and I think that was a moment where I realized that for us as a family, we had seen the fact that we had a black man in our family tree and that there wasn't evidence of that going forward as somehow escaping what could have potentially been a problem. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So we didn't celebrate it. We hid it. Yeah. And that's what I meant by becoming uncomfortable in a very comfortable situation, because it's easy for our white brothers and sisters to fade into the culture and the privilege that is so available. You know, I, I often use, as we have these conversations, uh, Pastor Jeff, the analogy that one of the things that makes me so uncomfortable in life is when I'm riding down the road with my wife and she begins to share with me my shortcomings or something I missed or I should have handled a different way. And the first thing I want to do is retreat into my man cave. It's difficult for me to hear that I made a mistake or that I messed up or that I was a part of something that hurt her. And so I think oftentimes when it comes to our white brothers, 
you know, uh, there's a song out that says it's cheaper to keep her. I can't get rid of her. I got to live with her, right? <laughs> you you probably haven't heard that song. That's one of them songs by one of them B.B. King kind of folk down in the days, you know. Yep. And so I got to stay with her, I, you know, and plus I'm committed, right? I'm in uh, covenant with this woman. And so my point is, is that I can't just fade into my cave and stay there. I got to deal with the reality of the fact that there is a problem here, and how am I going to address it? And that's what I love about what you decided as a white evangelical pastor. You could easily fade into the tapestry. Thank you. I think it's about time. Yeah. You know, in to be fair, you're very generous, but the evidence is available and everywhere if I will only choose to pay attention. My wife and I just got a new car. Yeah. Have you ever done this when you get a car and you're driving around the road and you're all of a sudden you're like, man, everybody's got one of my cars. <laughs> yeah. Because you just got the car. Right. But before you had the car, you didn't know it existed. Didn't notice. That's right. And I, and I think, again, it's a privilege that I have, but I've chosen to not pay attention to things that were everywhere. The evidence is clear. Yeah. And I have used the scriptures to justify why I don't need to pay attention. I've used arguments and justifications as to why what I see isn't exactly what I see. And I think there just came a point where I could no longer in good conscience as somebody who's confessed Jesus as Lord, I could no longer not pay attention to what I saw. Yeah. And I think that a lot of times we don't know what we don't know until we get in the arena of knowledge. And that brings me to this thought that we had about proximity, that mm -hmm. you and I have developed a relationship which has caused us to come into proximity of everyone. And I would say to my white brothers and sisters and my black brothers and sisters who are listening, that it's so critical to have people in your sphere of influence who don't look and think like you if you really want to understand, you know, there's an old saying that says, until you walk in someone else's moccasins, you really don't know what they're going through, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that our proximity has helped us. And, you know, you said some things at times, I look at you kind of weird or kind of funny, <laughs> and you go, oh, oh did, I, did I offend you? I go, well, <laughs> kind of. Because, you know, you weren't sensitized to some of the statements that you made. I remember you first introduced me to the idea you had a black great-grandfather and the way you were characterizing it as if that was such a, really, that was almost, an, it was a negative thing. Mm -hmm. And it was, in reality, to your family. They didn't want to expose that. But even as you talked about it, I sensed that you too were trying to find the right words not to offend me. And But proximity helps us. Yes, work those kinds of things out. And I think proximity and the unique, I think, voice that the church brings to the conversation is that we also bring tools that you demonstrate with me every time we're together, which is compassion and patience and gentleness and forgiveness. Like these are uniquely cross life kinds of tools Yeah, that the world's having this conversation with fists and anger Rightly so. But I think when the church enters into the conversation, we should have been the first ones on the streets, right? Yeah. We should be leading 
the charge right. for racial justice because we have the cross that gives us a way forward where canceling in certain situations is replaced by forgiveness. Yeah. And I think you've demonstrated that this is the mutuality of our relationship is that you easily speak the truth and love to me because you do love me. And I feel that even when I offend you, yeah. you're willing to say, hey, there's other ways to think about this. There's other ways to approach this. There's other ways to say that. So for me, the proximity to you as the man of God who loves me and wants the best for me and yet does not want me to stay in my comfortable space of homogeneity. I mean, you call me out of that. I think that's just been so powerful for me. And what's been powerful for me, along with proximity, has been your teachability. Not only your teachability, but you're wanting to be in a place of accountability. And again, riding down the road with my wife and she's telling me that which I don't want to hear, that I don't really want to own, then instead of me seeing as an accountability issue, I can go into my defense and I can literally at times just kind of remove myself. I appreciate the fact that you stay in proximity, your teachability, and then you really want to be in a place of accountability. You know, I have no idea what you're going through, Clarence, but I want you to know as your brother, I do want to learn. I do want to know. And I have an obligation to you to be transparent and try not to say things in an unloving and accusatory and all those negative things that drive you into a cave. Proximity, from my perspective, is the ability to be open and honest about what you are really hearing. And it is more than just a conversation, but it becomes a relationship. And in that relationship, it's a continuous dialogue and literally sitting at the same table, not having the black pastor come and preach at your church and the white pastor come and preach at your church and then you don't talk to each other for another whole year or meeting in a large stadium like Promise Keepers and hugging a black guy and then, okay, <laughs> that satisfies that. I, those things, that's not what I mean by proximity. I'm talking about a transformative, a relatable, continuous presence and dialogue, breaking a bread of my brother or my sister. I would just add a touch to that is that you can be near someone and closed off to them. So I can be close to you, but there's a posture I think you're also talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, again, as Christians, we have a unique directive in this. Paul says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. In love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And I think that just describes the way that you approach our relationship, which makes the proximity feel inviting. It makes me feel safe. It makes me feel loved. Even when in those spaces, there's accountability and there's truth being spoken, correction being given, the posture that you come with is just, I think, part of what that proximity gives me. Yeah. Let me give you a good story. I heard Dave Stone, a pastor 
well, he's retired now, Southeastern Church down in Louisville, Kentucky, told a story as he was trying to explain to his congregations the whole thing of transformation when it comes to proximity or being around people that aren't like you, but being in their presence. Right after slavery, a slave went to a rich man's house to get bread. He knocked on the door and the rich man's wife came to the door and she knew him. So she opened the door, but she looked to her left and to her right to see who was watching. And he said, I am so hungry, I need bread. And so she said, okay, go around to the back. So he went around to the back. She handed him bread. And she said, now, before you eat it, we need to pray. She said, I want you to repeat after me. He said, okay. And she said, our father. He said, your father. She looked at him. She says, oh, no, no, no. Just say it like I'm saying it. Our father. He said, your father. She says, why, why aren't you repeating? Why, why aren't you saying it the way I'm asking you to say it? He says, well, ma'am, if, if he was our father, then I would be your brother and you would be my sister. And you would not have had me go to the back door to get bread. That's kind of being in someone's presence, but not really being committed to the relationship. I thought that was a great story as we think about proximity. Yes. So, Jeff, let me ask this question, because, you know, the reality of the fact is, is that you and I are blessed to have the kind of relationship that we do. What would you say would be some advice you might give your white brothers and sisters, your peers, as to how they might be able to approach this thing of proximity without a clearance more in their lives? And then I'll speak to how maybe African-American pastors can speak to that, though I think our situation is different because we, we live in your world. Well, I mean, I think we live in an age of technology where we have access to so much content and we have access to so many resources that allow us to build an awareness library Yeah, that doesn't necessarily, I mean, it's always best if you can be in relationship. And I would even say if you are listening to this right now as a white pastor in a predominantly white space, that praying for opportunities to intersect with people who are not like you is a powerful way for you to begin to commit to becoming aware. Wow. Mm -hmm. Whether that is ever delivered upon or not, it's your intention to ask God to give you something that you know you need. And so I would just, I'd start there. But then I would just say there's just great resources that are available. And even in this moment, the resources are coming out so rapidly that I cannot keep up with the good scholarship that's being done in terms of racial equity and the gospel, but also just historical, cultural, critical literature that's being written and that has been written, it is available. I mean, I just think about committing to listening 
watching a an African American pastor preach a sermon once a month is a good way to start to build some proximity. Reading books, we'll have a recommended reading list of things that would be helpful, the things that have been helpful for me as I've been on this journey. Jamar Tisby has this little acronym he calls ARC, Awareness, Relationship, Commitment. He thinks all three of these should be holding each other in tension at all times. The relationship piece isn't as easily sometimes acquired, but the awareness piece is our responsibility to educate ourselves just about the history of racism, the history of segregation between black and white churches, the history of policing, the history of prison and incarceration laws, the history of redlining, food inadequacy, all of these things that we can take personal responsibility to make ourselves aware when we can't necessarily sit down and have coffee with a brother. That's awesome. That's that's a great answer. And I do think that to some of our white pastors, you probably have some black members. There seems to be the propensity of African-American congregants to sit under white pastors than the opposite. And so it may just mean that maybe you ask one of your congregational members if they, hey, can we go to lunch? Can we spend some time together? And then begin to create some kind of proximity to how people may be thinking. And it could be, in my case, I have a Hispanic brother that I probably need to spend some time with. And so we kind of initiated. I know it may be pastor and layperson, but still, take off the pastor hat, put on the manhood hat, and spend some time. Also, there's some associations like ministerial groups that you can find a good brother that you can kind of maybe ask to spend some time with. So that's a great question. I know in scripture, Pastor Jeff, I'm intrigued by what happened in Antioch in that 13th chapter in the book of Acts, as we talk about this thing of proximity and how you and I have kind of built our relationship. Because the Bible says, watch this, they were first called Christians at Antioch, as if the title of being a Christian kind of evolved out of a multi-ethnic, multi-racial congregation in the very beginning when the Holy Spirit told the church leaders to separate Paul and Barnabas to go and do mission work. And in that church were Africans and people from the diaspora of every color. Isn't that amazing? They were first called Christians in a multi-ethnic church. You could make the argument that the number one challenge opportunity is what they would have probably seen it in the beginning, was the question of homogeneity versus multi-ethnicity, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the book of Galatians is really a letter to Gentiles detailing why they do not have to become culturally Jewish in order to be Christian. (laughs) Yeah. You have deacons in your church? Oh, yes, we have deacons, yes. So the term comes from a story where the Hebraic Jews and the Grecian Jews were getting a disproportionate distribution of the food. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean it was inequalities in the early church? As soon as two or more were gathered in Jesus's name, <laughs> there was inequity. Oh, my God. Mm. But they dealt with it, right? So mm. they did. The apostles saw that the Grecian Jews were being overlooked. And so they appointed a group of people to take care of the inequity. Wow. That is the origination of the office of diakonos. That is true. And because the elders said, let us deal with these issues. 
and you guys deal with uh, those issues that are congregational. Wow. It was so important that they established an office to take care of it. So it was integral to, yeah. it wasn't more important than the work of prayer and the word, but it surely wasn't less important. You're speaking of the unity yes. that needed to be in that is so powerful of a thought. Yeah. And that why I often say it breaks God's heart that we're even having to have these discussions as we call ourselves children of the king. Well, we do know, though, that a privilege is not due. We saw that in also in the book of Acts when Peter was up on the housetop taking a, I don't know <laughs> if he was sunbathing or trying to get a tan, <laughs> but he had this vision and God had to deal with Peter and he sent him to Cornelius' house, that this was Gentile and Jewish kind of barriers that were in place. But that's another place where God had to move in an area of proximity in order for Peter to understand that he felt privileged as it relates to Gentiles and the possibility of Gentiles becoming Christians. Speak to that a moment for us. It's a fascinating story. When I would first interact with this story, I would say, oh, Peter's helping to bring Cornelius and his family into the kingdom. Right. And when you think about it, I think it's actually the opposite is what's happening. <laughs> that Cornelius and his family were, they got- Wait a minute, you, you're going to get thrown out of the temple here, but go, <laughs> I know where you're going. <laughs> but, but you think about it, it's, you know, the way that Cornelius is described as a God-fearer, an upright man, your, right. your actions and your attitudes, your almsgiving has come up as a fragrant offering to the Lord. I see you, Cornelius, you're one of mine. Come on now. Yeah. But I need your help with another one of mine. And he thinks that you are actually on the outside looking in. Mm. And so in order for Peter to be broken out of this mindset of privilege, he needed to go to Peter's house. And this is why I think it was mainly for Peter, is that before Peter's done preaching, the Holy Spirit comes. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Peter didn't get to the, he didn't have an altar call. That's right. And so when Peter walks in the house, he says, well, he first says, now, you know, it's unlawful for me to be here. First of all, <laughs> that's what he said. Right. I just want to make sure you know what kind of favor I'm doing for you. Right. He's doing like that lady in the story I told earlier. He's looking right and left, trying to see if his buddies see him there. Right. But go ahead. And we know that this happens even farther down in Peter's ministry career again in Galatians. Absolutely. Which, again, is helpful for me to know that I'm in process as well, right? We're all in process. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. But Peter finally says, I can see now that it's true that God does not show favorites. Here's the thing. God has never shown favorites. Absolutely. They built a system that favored some over others. And Peter was reminded again of the God who puts the Imago Dei in everyone. Wow. That is so true that this is a progressive revelation and a progressive surrendering when it comes to this whole notion of walking in the arena of loving my brother as I love myself. Because remember, even before that incident at Cornelius' house, Jesus had taken them on an excursion through Samaria. Yep. And he said that I must needs go through Samaria. And that was so diametrically opposite of what Jews would always go around those people because they didn't want to mingle with those people, those folk that were lower than us. 
And Jesus says, I must needs go through Samaria. Peter saw the interaction of Jesus and the woman at the well, but yet it didn't register. And I think that happens a lot of times in the white community is that they see the injustices. They see the George Floyd issues. They see January the 6th, and then they begin to compartmentalize or somehow not really see the truth of what Jesus is really trying to reveal. I was just talking to an expert in communications recently who said that it takes someone seven times hearing a message before it's going to click. And I do think there is something about the awareness piece when you don't have a person for proximity to find different ways in which you can have your Peter moment where it may not be in somebody's house, but do we as white pastors have a posture that says we may still need to grow in our understanding of what's going on in the world and how as Christians, we are still in process of being formed. Yeah. I think if we can start there, then we can say there's a posture that says I need to learn. There's things that I lack that I must try and find the answers to. And if we can start there versus what I think oftentimes we do is the defensive position. I've already decided on my conclusions in regards to race, and therefore I can move on in a different direction. Wow. You know, Robin D'Angelo in her book, White Vigility, speaks to that. She's a white woman that feels called to helping her community become sensitized to the plight of people who are considered in the culture or in the the larger culture, I should say, a world to be underprivileged. And so she talks about how white people have a way of compartmentalizing and saying to themselves that I'm not a racist. Uh, that's those people that stormed the Capitol on January the 6th. And so they kind of rationalize the fact that they're okay, though they are complicit and, again, silent in making things better for all people. And so when they get in a place of proximity where knowledge, as you spoke of, is being shared, a lot of times they'll sit in the corporate rooms in the diversity training and they shut down. Mm -hmm. they, they just they don't want to go there. And for believers, I think that is a big mistake. And it also hurts to, to you businessmen out there that may be listening to this conversation. It hurts your bottom line when you don't have a diversified workforce that speaks to the needs of the total consumer. Because the last time I checked, the dollar bill is not predicated on whether you're white or black. Mm -hmm. They spend the same. Yeah. And so... There's a lot of ways we can look at the positive aspects of getting in proximity and creating diversity in, around your business or your church. So as I think about proximity and one of the reasons that you and I are not only engaging ourselves in this conversation and in this relationship, but we have the audacity now to get our congregations involved and in putting them in proximity of one another. Do you feel that this is the next step in the transformational process of dealing with social justice? Or do you think, Jeff, we're going to end up staying in a transactional 
kind of environment with the men and women that are now going to be spending time with one another? Yeah, I think the benefit of getting our congregants in proximity is that it sometimes gets us out of the way. And I think there is an appetite for these sorts of transformational relationships that go beyond, like you said, sort of the promise keepers window dressing. It looks great. It makes a good photo op, but it doesn't necessarily lead to any change. Right. And really what it does is it allows white people to go home and feel better about themselves versus to be able to sit with someone to look across the table, to hear their stories of experience in the world that I exist in and to believe that their experience is true and to have to wrestle through the differences between that. I think that's what leads to formation, transformation. Transformation assumes that I believe that there is something that needs to be formed in me that I'm deficient in. You know, it assumes that a change needs to be made. And I think that's the gospel. Yeah. Our baptism is not the end of our journey. It's the beginning of our journey. And when we came to Jesus, we said we were deficient in the kind of life that we were originally created to live. And so I came to Jesus and I was buried with Christ in the waters of baptism and raised again into a new way of life, which means that this side of eternity, I am always in process. That's the posture that we take. And I think that proximity piece with relationships with people who are not like us, but who are on that same journey, that same eternal journey towards the image of Jesus, it gives us that opportunity for all of us to be transformed. As we close this segment out, I think of the words of the great gospel artist, Lecrae. <laughs> Lecrae, standing in a predominantly white church after they had finished praise and worship, said these words. Guys, your forefathers built a wall of injustice and of separation. Now it's time for their children to tear those walls down and let's rebuild together. Thank you for listening to the Shades of Hope podcast, part of the Center for Congregations podcast network. If you like this episode and think it would be helpful for others, please take a moment to rate and review it on iTunes.